And welcome to Broadway Radios this week on Broadway for Sunday, November 5th, 2017. Daylight savings fallback. Yeah. So uh, we got that extra hour of sleep. That's really exciting. So we might be a little mm-hmm. bit more chipper today, won't we? <laughs> uh, my, my name is James Marino. And in, the, in the broadcast today, we have Peter Felicia and Michael Portantier. Peter is a theater journalist and historian with a number of books. His most recent is The Great Parade, which is available everywhere. His columns appear at MTI, Masterworks, Broadway, Broadway Select, and many of the places. Good morning, Peter. Good morning. Good morning. Did you use your extra hour well? Oh, yeah. Exactly what you said. Sleeping. Excellent. I love this day of the year. <laughs> <laughs> also with this is Michael Portantier. Michael is a theater reviewer and SES and is the chief New York theater critic at Talkin' Broadway. He is also a theatrical photographer whose photos have appeared in the New York Times and other major publications. You could see his photography work at followspotphoto.com. Good morning, Michael. Good morning. Good morning. So, Peter, you got up to the Goodspeed Opera House to see the production of Rags, which is very exciting. Tell us about what did you think of Rags? I thought it was terrific. Um, it, this is, the word revisal uh, really applies here. My, if the word revisal had not existed, it would have <laughs> to have been invented for this one because um, only about nine of the songs from the original Broadway production are still with it. Um, about 11 have been dropped, but about 11 have been added. Now, I'm not saying that composer Charles Strauss and lyricist Stephen Schwartz went back to work on it and um, created these 11 songs in the last year or so. They may have. Uh, that'd be nice. They may have been songs that were dropped originally during the um, rehearsal period of the Boston tryout. Rags, of course, only ran four performances, was admired by many, and in fact even got more Tony nominations than a four-performance failure usually gets. And um, the main thing that everybody said about it at the time was that there were too many stories going on. And so, ironically enough, David Thompson, who has um, revamped Joseph Stein's original book, decided to drop a character. Now, at first glance, it would seem to be a very bad idea to drop the character of Nathan. Now, let me explain who that is. First off, the story really centers on Rebecca and David, who are immigrants uh, coming over. They've just landed in America, and they were expecting, or at least assuming, that uh, Nathan, her husband, his father, will indeed meet them at the boat. And um, they'll live happily ever after in the golden land that's America. Um, What can go wrong? He's not there. And when they finally find him, uh, frankly, I think it's he finds them. But when it finally happens, he's not 100 percent happy to see them because he's become so assimilated as um, as an American. In fact, um, he's no longer Nathan Herskovitz. He's Nat Harris. And um, he's a little embarrassed uh, with these reminders of the old country and broken English. I imagine this story happened plenty of times and perhaps is still happening. Um, so I thought it was a very powerful idea for a story. Well, David Thompson has dropped that character. And, you know, in a way, it's not as injurious as I thought it would be because now Rebecca is a widow. And now you realize that here's a woman who's coming to America on her own with no expectations of anybody caring for her. I mean, she expected in the original that her husband would provide well, that's not going to happen. So she becomes more courageous as a result of this move. So so that's one thing that happens. What happens is she's a very good dressed sewer, yes, but a des- seamstress, I guess I should say, but a very good designer of dresses. And she has ideas on how dresses should look. And this catches the eye of her employer who gets interested in her. Okay. Now, also interested in her is Sal. Now, people who saw the original said, no, 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 not Sal, Saul. You know, he was Saul in the original. 
He's Sal Dow. The thing is that now he's a Roman Catholic and she's a Jew. Okay, we've heard that story a million times. You know, will religion come between them? Our love can never be, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, I will admit that that seems a little trite. However, David Thompson doesn't go in that direction as much as you should think. It's mentioned once, but the real conflict is between um, whether or not she will choose the man who really appeals to her or the rich man, which is uh, certainly um, a, a real conflict. And I will also admit, not the freshest idea in the world either, but taint what you do, it's the way that you do it. And David Thompson does a nice job with it. You know, um, what we have to admit is that in the original, when Rebecca was not finding her husband, but was still a married woman, mind you, when she was not finding her husband, um, she did fall in love with Saul, and well, isn't that cl- doesn't she seem to be uh, courting adultery there? So that's not an issue now. Now, when she's attracted to Sal and sings the glorious song "Blame It on the Summer Night," a phenomenal song, um, you know, she has a right to do it. Um, it, it, it. It it doesn't bother us in the way that it might have in 1986 when the show was first produced. So, so a lot of um, moves that are improvements, a lot of moves that are lateral, um, <laughs> and um, uh, a few that one could effectively argue are not uh, impressive. But what's really surprising is how many songs have been reapportioned to other people. There's a sub story about um, Bella uh, who uh, comes to this country with great expectations. And when they're dashed in the original, she um, really um, shot off at her father who kept on telling her that this is a great country. And she says, no, you know, we're, we're living uh, dressed in rags. And, uh, and, but now Rebecca gets that song when she gets disillusioned uh, about that happening. Originally, Nathan, Nat, sang Yankee Boy, that he was a Yankee Boy. That now goes to the character of Ben, uh, who was courting Bella. Ben is an entrepreneur, and um, we get the impression he's going to be successful because he's hawking. Uh, he really believes in this new invention called a phonograph. So uh, that really is very impressive. Uh, we know that that's going to succeed. So, uh, But the best moment in Rags, which was said by a, a male character in the original, now said by Bella, is the fact that they don't make it easy for you in America but at least they make you they allow you to do it that they um that you you have opportunities they may not be automatic opportunities <laughs> but they're there and um if you if you can find them and if you have luck no question about it um then indeed you have a chance to succeed in America so so that's uh, the strength of our rag but there is a liability i think and uh, since they were doing all this changing why not change the title because at intermission, I was coming back and a guy, I overheard a guy telling a woman, you know, I, I thought when I came here today, I thought I saw this show before. I saw it in New York with that Brian guy with a funny middle name, you know, but um, no, uh, this is a different show, you know, and I do believe, you know, it was fine to call the show Rags in 1986, 12 years before Ragtime opened. But now that there's a Ragtime uh, and mm. frankly, um, if we're going to come down to brass tacks, that's a better musical. It's a more ambitious musical. Certainly Rags has a great deal of ambition in telling us uh, the story of immigrants, but you know, it is between the Jews and the Wasp much of the time, and uh, you get that extra dimension of the blacks uh, in Ragtime. So um, while they were changing everything, <laughs> why not change the title as well? I think it would have served them extraordinarily well, not just because there, there may be other people who get confused between the two, but also because it invites comparison which you really should distance yourself from that musical. I, I did have a few problems here and there. Originally, when the people arrived um, getting off the boat right on Ellis Island, there used to be uh, two men who worked there who sang um, about, uh, we got another load of greenhorns here. Okay, fine. That's a very good idea. Now what happens is that five wasps dressed in their utmost finery sing it. Two of them are women. And I cannot see uh, women in that era, uh, society women, uh, joining in on that. Even society women uh, in those days pretty much kept their mouths shut and uh, didn't get involved with issues of of this level. So um, I think they should have been excused from the number. And it should just be a guy's thing, especially since you should pardon the expressions. 
heebs and wops are are actual words in the song. So I, I don't see society women saying those words. So I think that was a miscalculation. But otherwise, Rob Ruggiero did a wonderful job of directing, extraordinarily slick, moves like lightning. Um, so this is a very successful situation. And while I don't see it um, opening on Broadway and running for years, I do think it's an excellent candidate for Roundabout. And I won't be the slightest bit, you know, a limited engagement. I won't be the slightest bit surprised if Roundabout picks it up because if they picked up Holiday Inn, this is a far superior show to that. And I think it um, speaks to a lot of people. It, it does remind us, uh, to paraphrase the Bible, honor thy great-grandfather and great-grandmother. We owe them a lot for making this journey and having no idea what they're going to find here. Or if they did have an idea what they were going to find here, they thought it was going to be better than it was when they got here. They thought they were going to be welcomed with open arms. And what happened? Good Lord, you know, prejudice and hatred right from the get-go. So we really owe a debt to these people. And I'll, I'll tell you, this, this occurred to me a little before Rags was originally produced when I went to uh, see Our Hearts Belong to Mary, a tribute to Mary Martin. And, of course, Mary Martin was in Lute's song in 1946 with Nancy Davis, who became Nancy Reagan, and she was there that night. And I thought to myself, wow, here I am in the same theater with the First Lady of the United States. Would my great-grandparents have ever envisioned this happening? Maybe they would, maybe they wouldn't. But it did show America works. And indeed, RAG shows America works, too. It's interesting what you said about uh, possible roundabout picking it up. Um, Matt Tamanini has been talking on Today on Broadway about the uh, the roundabout season and the lack of musicals in the roundabout season for the foreseeable future. Uh, so that would fit the bill if they could get a musical in there, especially Rags, who uh, we we don't often to get get to see a uh, professional production of. No, no, they are few and far between. Stephen Schwartz is, uh, I guess, a noted reviser of his his works. Uh, I it might have been interesting uh, because of the extent of the revisions here, as you said. It uh, might have been interesting to have a program note detailing the uh, source of the various "quote unquote" new songs. Um, I, yeah, I, I didn't see it in there. David Thompson has a little essay in there, but um, uh, he didn't deal with this issue at all. Yeah, yeah. Well, maybe at some point it'll come out if it has a further life. Sure. You know, just because, it, you know, it's interesting. Sometimes it is. It is. Uh, I have seen shows like that where it's it's laid out in, in great detail <laughs> uh, what came from where and what's new and what might be, uh, you know, partly new and what's a trunk song. But, uh, well, who knows? Maybe we'll find out. Mm-hmm. All right. Next up, Michael, you got to see you got to see the the last match. So why don't you tell us about that? The Last Match is a very good play by Anna Ziegler, uh, directed by Gay Taylor Upchurch, and it's at the Roundabout's Laura Peltz Theater. Uh, one of the first uh, and foremost intriguing things about this is that the two central characters pretty much are two tennis players, uh, two male tennis players. Uh, but as I mentioned, this play was written and directed by a woman, and so I'm happy to say that the two uh, – other characters, the two women in the lives of these two tennis players, are as fully realized and as interesting as the athletes themselves. Um, the the uh, the framing device is that it's the semifinals of the U.S. Open, but there are lots and lots of flashbacks and then flash forwards as we see these two um, over several years of their career, their tennis career, and the. Um, the American is uh, is quote unquote aging, uh, which means you know in the tennis world he's 34, uh, and his name is Tim, and he's played by Wilson Bethel. The Russian Sergey uh, is considerably younger; he's played by Alex Mikowitz. Um, Tim's wife Mallory is Zoe Winters, and. Uh, the woman uh, who is with Sergei, I, she eventually uh, they talk about getting married for for, for uh, a long while, and I guess they eventually do, but we don't actually see that in the course of the show. Uh, her name is Galina, and she's played by Natalia Payne. And uh, you know, there have been, as we all know, there have been many plays and several musicals about the sports world. Some far more successful than others. I think this one does a very good job, a very good job 
job of um, communicating the drama of of the athletic competition itself and also uh, how these people need to weigh that against their personal lives, various issues in their personal lives. Um, the big issue or one of the big issues in the lives of Tim and Mallory is that she is having a great deal of trouble bringing a baby to term and they keep trying and this becomes a, a, a very big issue and I won't say more about that because I don't want to give any spoiler um, with Sergei and Galina she is a, she's a wonderful character she's very strong uh, but she can also be extremely uh, gentle and comforting when she needs to. It turns out that Sergei has a huge problem with insomnia, which is something, as I uh, mentioned before, that I'm struggling with at the moment. She has a lovely uh, monologue to him where she helps him try to go to sleep. And it was just beautiful. The, I think the audience really, really responded to that. Um, this is a, the production itself is is first class in that in that intimate Laura Pell's theater, uh, and the set, uh, although sim- simple in a way, is really very effective. It's there's a, a, a cyclorama against the back wall, and there we see what would be like the semicircular uh, slope of the I guess the top of the stands below that. Uh, above the proscenium arch are what look like real stadium lights, and there's a whole lot of them. They're all across the top of the proscenium arch. And then on either side of um, the of the house, uh, house right and house left, on the on the walls of the of the theater of the house uh there's a scoreboard on each side which a functional scoreboard on each side which uh helps us keep track of uh where where we are in the match uh so that was all very impressive it looks like they spent a a fair amount of money on it for a you know for a uh a play in that venue and i think it's worth it um you know we saw that rash uh or that series of of sports plays a few years ago written by eric simonson uh i believe the first one was lombardi which i i liked very much uh bronx bombers which i also enjoyed but not as much and then magic bird which i did not think was successful at all um this one i would i would count among the successes and i appreciate the fact that uh, that the the female characters, as I said, are as fully realized as the as the two athletes who are you know technically the the center of the story. Uh, I think that was very well done, and it's uh, I, I I I did think that there might have been one more character. It's it's only those four characters that I mentioned. I thought there might have been uh, a, someone else, like maybe a coach or or uh, some kind of official to to bounce things off of at certain points but it it wasn't uh it wasn't a major liability for any in any way um the issues that these people are dealing with aside from the fact that they're world-class tennis players are you know many of the issues that so many people deal with uh, having children raising children uh dealing with their parents and then just um life life challenges from day to day so i i found it extremely worthwhile and i'm very glad that i saw it all right uh so that is the last match at the roundabout theater company laura pells we'll have a link to that in the show notes by the way this is a very good year for anna ziegler because she's about to have another play produced um (laughs) a little uh east of seventh avenue and uh, actually that's the name of the play, actually, occurs at the uh, Manhattan Theater Club a little later this month. So it's a good year for Anna Ziegler. Mm. Um, the next up, we have The Life and Times of Lee Harvey Oswald over at La Mama. Peter, you got a chance to see that? So tell us about that. Well, you may be surprised to hear that any play about Lee Harvey Oswald would be presented by the Czechoslovak American Marionette Theater. And indeed, puppets do show up in this uh, production. Some of them are about six inches tall. Some of them are like um, ventriloquists partners, I guess we can say now, uh, to be politically correct, rather than using the word dummies. But um, here they are, and they're doing this hour 45-minute, essentially biography of Lee Harvey Oswald um, at La Mama, 
And it is tremendously effective. Now, I will admit that this may be of more interest to me than it is to many other people. Um, I, I went specifically because I will go to anything involving the Kennedy assassination, which really threw me for a loop when I was a kid because um, I'm from Massachusetts. Kennedy was too. Uh, I was raised as a Roman Catholic. Kennedy was too. Um, you know, so this was a, a significant man in, in my life, um, in my circle. I didn't know anybody who didn't vote for John F. Kennedy uh, in 1960. Um, obviously, Massachusetts had plenty of voters who didn't. It wasn't like it was a shutout, but still. So this is a more than moderate interest to me, and I was riveted by this play, mostly because it really gave us a window into um, Lee Harvey Oswald. Now, when you think of it, the world knew of Lee Harvey Oswald being alive for a very short period of time, essentially for fewer than 48 hours, because uh, the assassination took place on November 22nd, um, um, it's in the early afternoon, and he was murdered, as we know, by Jack Ruby in the morning of November 24th. So it was fewer than 48 hours where um, he had any chance to say anything or let us know who he was. Now, of course, that wonderful musical Assassins with that phenomenal scene at the end gives voice to Lee Harvey Oswald. But um, that's more a, a, a fantasy, needless to say, given that John Wilkes Booth is the one talking to him. I, I do believe it's one of the greatest scenes in the history of musicals, but still, we are talking about fantasy. This one tries to be more realistic, and I have no idea how successful it is in being actually realistic, if indeed this is um, – they, they did tons of research to find out um, uh, and find out things he actually said. But I'm telling you, you get convinced that you're really watching the real guy. And here's a guy who incessantly says, I know my rights, and he really believes he does. Whenever he speaks to people, about the uh, the Soviet Union being a far better place to live than America. I mean, he he is so secure in this. You you almost feel like you're you're um, talking to somebody who believes that the uh, person who they voted for in the last election was indeed the only person that could have possibly been the right person. He has that type of assurance, and you know he is an ignorant guy in the sense that um, he hasn't had much education. But you'd never know it from the way that he talks. He really has the confidence of someone who truly believes that he is going to um, convince the other person that the Soviet Union is the greatest place in the world to live. So when he gets to the – now he's going to defect. He goes to the Soviet Union and um, they see his passport and he says to them, take it. I don't need it anymore. I'm here forever. That's it. You know, I don't want it. And no sooner is he there – that there's a wonderful moment where um, a Russian uh, Soviet person says to him, you know, is it true that everybody in America has a car? And while everybody in America doesn't have a car, uh, a good deal of the population does have a car. And the way the question is asked suggests that very few people in um, the Soviet Union have access to that. And you can really see him taken aback as it really comes home to him that maybe this isn't the land of milk and honey that he expected. And he has to admit that, uh, yeah, pretty much so. And it becomes a story of disillusionment, and it's really quite wonderful later when he calls up the embassy and says, listen, um, I gave you my passport for safekeeping. I'd like it back. I want to go to America. Yeah, and what happened to this guy who, take it, take, I don't want it. You know, I'm here. You know, suddenly he wants to come back. So it's an extraordinarily powerful story. It jumps back and forth in time. So um, don't assume that when uh, you're seeing something that takes place on November 22nd, that the end is coming up in, in two seconds. It's not. They go here, there, and everywhere. And it's done by an astonishing cast. And I have to admit that um, the way the uh, press release is written, I can't tell who played Lee Harvey Oswald, but boy, did they find a winner in it. He is Sen. Sensational. And this is really something that must be seen for anybody who has any interest in this period of history and really wants to see good theater. Um, the puppets certainly add to the, I'll put quotation marks around this word, fun. But um, it it's something to see all these uh, manipulated. There's one that's very effective involving a chess game that um, that's worth seeing as well. But uh, you would expect that a, a puppet theater would know how to manipulate these puppets extraordinarily well, and oh, yes, they do. So this is one of the most satisfying evenings I've ever had uh, at La Mama, going back to 1970 when I saw my first show there. So I do believe that this is well worth seeking. Wow. That's uh, 
quite an endorsement. And I might point out that I'm looking at the La Mama website. Uh, top ticket price is $20. Plus Money well spent. $1 facility fees. So get get down there and check that out. It is running through November 19th. So you have just a, about two weeks left to go check that out. And we'll have links to that in the show notes in case you're able to venture down there. All right. Uh, next up, Michael, you got to see the National Chorales. Um, it's listed as Carmina Burana, but you're talking about the Leonard Bernstein section of it. So why don't you tell us about that? Well, I would have gone for either or both yeah. because, yes, they did Carl Orff's Carmina Burana. On, this was Friday, November 3rd at – what's it called now? Still called Geffen Hall. Uh, David Geffen <laughs> the Hall being... at Lincoln Center. <laughs> yes, I was I was half joking. Um, uh-huh. <laughs> You know, it's interesting. There is the um, that atrium uh, across from Lincoln Center, uh, the Rubenstein atrium. Is that what it's called? Where there's the uh, now a TKTS booth, uh, in addition to a, a cafe and a, just chairs to hang out at. Uh, and there's a TKTS booth, and they have a lot of. Um, large photos on one of the walls, really large black and white photos of the history of Lincoln Center. And they're going to have to be updated because one of the large photos I noticed uh, was talking about the opening of the the New York State Theater. And uh, it says below it, recently renamed the Coke Theater. And I thought, well, that's not that recent anymore. But then also another photo uh, mentions that, and I had forgotten this. Do you guys realize that um, what was initially called Philharmonic Hall opened in 1962, which is four years before the Metropolitan Opera House opened? Those uh, those uh, separate buildings of Lincoln Center opened uh, over a period of, of, of at least four years. And so anyway, it, it, it mentions that uh, Philharmonic Hall uh, opened in 1962, and it's now called Avery Fisher Hall. Uh, so they they don't have the Geffen up there yet, and I guess uh, I mean it can't be it can't be cheap to change those large photos, but I think they should probably do that. <laughs> but anyway, I saw um, this wonderful concert by the National Chorale and their orchestra at Geffen Hall, and it featured uh, part two of the program uh, was. Karlov's Carmina Burana. Part one w- was mostly made up of the Chish- the Chichester Psalms of Leonard Bernstein, which if you don't, if you guys don't know this piece, um, you owe it to yourself. It's it's really beautiful, fantastic, um, lyrical in pl- places, very powerful in others. Uh, three a setting of three Hebrew Psalms by Bernstein, and uh, so I would have gone for that alone. But then also uh, the program opened with guest artists, uh, young people from the Professional Performing Arts High School. Choir, um, and they perform because, uh, as their conductor mentioned, we are very close to uh, the Bernstein Centennial Year, which is 2018, getting closer by the day, by the week. Uh, so there's going to be a lot of Bernstein uh, celebrated over the, the next year and 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 more. Uh, so these kids uh, did three things, uh, and they sang beautifully. They sang the warm up from uh, Bernstein's Mass, which is the do bing, do bang, do bong, do bing, do bong. And that was great. Then they did um, make our garden grow from Candide in a, in a largely a cappella arrangement. Mm. And they closed with Somewhere from West Side Story. So that was, um, that was a really wonderful. Uh, reminder to have some of Bernstein's theater music before we went into the more classical stuff. And um, speaking of Candide, I, I just wanted to use that as a little segue to I just received in the mail. Uh, I have not had a chance to open it yet, but there is a new biography of John Latouche, who wrote some of the lyrics for Candide, although not the lyrics for Make Our Garden Grow, uh, which were written by Rit. Richard Wilbur, but John Latouche wrote uh, quite a few of the lyrics of Candide, uh, as well as the lyrics for Cabin in the Sky, and as all musical theater aficionados know, the lyrics for The Golden Apple, which is, a, uh, I guess, still a cult musical, even though uh, slightly less of one now that, <laughs> that encores um, finally did it. Um, John Latouche also wrote the libretto for 
one of the best American operas there that there is, The Ballad of Baby Dose. Uh, some of you may be familiar with that. Um, so, and he uh, apparently had a very, very interesting life aside from his artistic achievements. So I'm looking forward to uh, delving into this book, The Ballad of John Latouche, an American Lyricist's Life and Work by Howard Pollock from Oxford University Press. That's one of the things on my reading list. Me too. Um, I got the book as well. And uh, the way I do with every uh, biography, of anybody involved with Broadway is, of course, to read about the shows first, and then I'll go back to John Latouche was born on in, you know, uh, so I always do that. And so the chapter on The Vamp, uh, the show that Carol Channing was in, that, it, that uh, I'm told is the one thing she will not talk about if you ask her. I, I'm not saying that's true. I've heard that that's the case. <laughs> but um, but uh, the author, uh, Howard Pollock, does say that uh, one time on the Tony Awards, she did say, um, uh, I, I was with the uh, the vamp and it had a very great problem. Uh, the curtain went up, you know. So uh, that does suggest there may be something to the statement that she won't talk about it now. But um, but reading about the uh, how it evolved and uh, there were certainly some lyrics quoted and um, he lays it out tremendously as he does with the golden apple. He really does like act one, scene one, act one, scene two. I mean, so uh, if you really want to know about these shows, uh, he certainly has gone and done the research for you. So it does seem to be a very powerful book. And um, when I get through reading with the shows, I will go back and find out where he was born and when. So uh, yeah, I can, at this point I can recommend it as well, Michael. All right. So I will throw a link in the show notes to the book uh, over at Amazon in case you want to pick that up as well. Uh, Peter, you got uh, over to Signature where you saw Jesus Hop the A-Train by Stephen Adley Gerges, one of our favorites, one of my favorites. Uh, So tell us about that. Oh, it's really something. Um, It's very harrowing to watch any play that's uh, set in a prison. And uh, here we're in a prison where we're taken to the part of the prison where the men get an hour a day. They're in solitary confinement, but they do get an hour a day. And um, and it's really something when one of the prisoners says, some guys don't take their hour. You know, they just stay in their cells, but I take my hour. And what he points out is that one time he actually killed someone. We're not meant to necessarily admire this guy, mind you. He killed somebody because um, the guy, I think, delivered like a pizza or something and left the door open and the sun was bothering him. And so he went, he went crazy and he killed the guy. But now he points out he loves the sun, you know, because when you're in a cell all day, um, to get an hour's worth of sun is really something. Well, uh, what you have here is uh, orchestration of character because you have this grizzled older prisoner and here comes this new guy in who uh, did something bad, but um, there are extenuating circumstances and that's made very clear. So you have the experienced prisoner and the new prisoner um, and to the new prisoner, of course, uh, this is such a trauma. He you know, imagine what it's like your first night in prison uh, when you think that it could be just the first of the rest of your life, which is really on the table here. And he does have a lawyer that he's not very interested in cooperating with, but um, eventually will. And the lawyer, of course, will do what she can to make something happen here. She makes her mistakes, too. And um, and but the point is, when a lawyer makes mistakes in this circumstance, who suffers for it? And we know who does. So so there's a lot going on here. And um, what's also impressive is the fact that you see that these men are not stupid men. They they have a, a, a richer vocabulary than you might suspect, certainly, but also the concepts and the rebuttals that they give when um, faced with uh, any question really turns out to be significant. So you realize that they're, they're, they're not morons. Um, and um, you also, it then occurs to you what these men could have been if indeed they had better breaks in life. And uh, yes, they're responsible for their actions. Don't misunderstand me. But still, when you see somebody who's natively bright and you see that um, it, it hasn't worked out well for them, you have to wonder, at least for a moment, uh, <clears throat> did the system fail them as well as they're failing themselves? Now, in every prison, of course, there are also guards. And the play starts off with one of the guards being tremendously chummy with our older prisoner. <clears throat> they were almost friends. In in a way, he almost the guard almost admires the uh, grizzled prisoner. And as a result, he is fired very quickly into the show. 
very cool. We, we will see him again and very effectively too. But um, in comes the other guard who is not fooling around and he treats both of these prisoners terribly, reminding us of what a nightmare prison can be. Beautifully acted, beautifully directed, very powerful, very harrowing, you know, not a good date night show, but still a terrific play. And I'm very glad the signature revived it. It, it was originally produced in 2000, and suddenly that's 17 years ago, and it's certainly time for a revival. And how nice the signature gave us such a great one. Ah, oh, that's great. Stephen Adley Gerges is uh, a writer who has written written Between Riverside and Crazy that we talked about a few years back, Motherfucker with the Hat, The Last Days of Judas Iscariot. Um, so this is somebody who I, I just, you know, ha would you consider him somebody who has had a breakout hit so far? I mean, I'm just ready for it. I don't think that The Motherfucker with the Hat was a really a huge hit, but what do you think? No, um, but this he wants to deal with issues that are certainly not commercial. And so yeah. he is one of our most significant playwrights. However, um, whether or not he has a commercial hit is, is less important than whether or not he's doing good yeah. work. So um, a Pulitzer Prize is in there, too, I think. Yeah, so, uh, uh, 2015, 2015 for Riverside and Crazy. Right. So uh, so he's getting his due in that way, even if the public isn't clamoring for tickets and lining up around the block as they're doing at the Schubert Theater or the Richard Rogers Theater. So um, I, I think he can be quite pleased with himself, and I suspect he is. I hope he is. All right. You know, I'm looking – I'm trying to look now uh, up his um, film and TV credits uh, because it seems to me uh, that he would be the kind of person that they would snap up. So let's see. The Get Down TV series, that's a current series, NYPD Blue, uh, UC Undercover, Big Apple. Uh, I'm not, I don't know if you guys are familiar with his TV work at all. But it seems like he's quite active there, and I, I'm not surprised. It's his you know, very compelling language and characters uh, that I think a lot of people would respond to in, in, you know, on, in the television and film sphere as well. Interesting. He's got acting credits too. A lot of acting credits I'm looking here. Yeah, uh, yeah. And uh, writer credits, uh, I mean, NYPD Blue is back in 2002. The Get Down is more recent. He's written 11 episodes uh, in 2016, 2017. Uh, uh, so, yeah, I mean, it seems like a renaissance man who can do everything. <laughs> um, uh, Riedel had a column uh, this week that talked about what we thought was what he thought was going to come to Broadway. He talked about the honeymooners making a transfer and uh, thinking it back to the review of the honeymooners. I was surprised about that. What do you think I think about that? Well, they certainly intended to come to Broadway. Uh, I don't know how the reception if they feel that it was justified that move, I, I um, was supposed to attend and then I couldn't. I think the only review I read was the. Um, no, I'm sorry, I read two. One was one was mostly negative and one was completely positive. And I think the completely positive one was the New York Times. So yes. <laughs> Yes, yeah, it yeah. wasn't. Uh, it wasn't one of their two um, first-string critics, but yes, it was. Right. It, it was the best notice that I saw them get. I saw many more than two, uh, mm. and it was by far the best one that they received. So, uh, um, I, I think the honeymoon is good, bad, or indifferent has a tremendous chance at success if they don't change a word of it, because I do believe that given that Broadway is a tourist um, place now that uh, people coming to town will say, Oh wow, the honeymoon is because they know the series. I mean, it's, it's been so ubiquitous over the years. And uh, so I, I do believe that uh, this show can be a hit and, um, and certainly 
those four people deserve to be seen. Mm-hmm. They are so phenomenal. I mean, really, Michael McGraw, Leslie Kritzer, Michael Mastro, Laura Bell Bundy, so good in what they're doing. So, so under those circumstances, um, I wish them well. Would I like them to go back and do some work? Of course. Um, <laughs> nothing's hurt by being improved, as Buddy Fiddler says in City of Angels. So uh, I, I believe that, I believe that too. So, so. Um, let's hope that there's a house for it. Yeah, they're talking uh, in this column uh, that the uh, Donna Summer musical uh, called Summer uh, is playing at the La Jolla Playhouse, is also trying to find properties in New York, and Hadestown, which is playing up in Canada right now, uh, is also looking for uh, some space in the spring. So I think we might have a, uh, a traffic jam in Times Square worse than normal. Yeah, you know? <laughs> the the share show, the share show yeah, is nice right. to talk about. Uh-huh. And wasn't it nice to hear an official announcement this week? I don't know if you caught it about the Colonial Theater in Boston, oh, where yeah. Uh, yeah, where Moulin Rouge is going to try out uh, next summer. So that's really nice to hear too. While we had heard rumors that. Um, the, the, the theater would open in January with, this would have been fun, a reading, just a reading, of Curtains, which takes place at the Colonial Theater in Boston. Ah. That's what it's actually <laughs> Yeah, said. that's right. That would have been nice. You know, that would have been a good break in, you know, just to uh, relish old times when tryouts routinely came to the Colonial Theater. And uh, so, yeah, it's very nice to know that plans are afoot and things are happening. And my friends in Boston tell me that when they walk by the theater, they see a lot of workmen uh, uh, around so things are happening there it is being refurbished and uh thank the lord that it's not a situation where this is yet another theater that where they turn off the air conditioning in the summer and they turn off the heat in the winter and then things disintegrate that's how if you ever wondered why all these th- you see the picture of the theaters where everything looks terrible and you say to yourself my god nobody's in them why do these things fall apart well that's the reason why i was head went headed into the uh Ethel Barrymore last night to see the band's visit, and I looked over this across the street, and I said to my friend, "I wonder if the Edison will ever become <laughs> a legit theater again." It doesn't have a long history as a legit theater anyway, but um, trying to think of venues that were at some point, and you know, I mean, whoever thought that the Hudson Theater would would become absolutely yeah. true. So, and you know, possible. the thing that really surprised me, and I will admit, it's off the beaten track, but still, given the fact that the Ziegfeld Theater was closing down, it must have been easier to refurbish the Ziegfeld in some sort of way to make it a legitimate theater than uh, to start from scratch. It it breaks my heart when I'm standing in front of the Imperial, and to the left there's that empty space that was most of us knew as a parking garage for all those decades, but there was once a theater there. That wasn't always a parking garage. That was once a theater there. And to think that there could be another theater on 45th Street that could certainly be used, you know. Um, and while it is true that so many times producers say, we're not coming in because we can't find a theater, that's really a code for we don't have the money. There are shows that really could come in. I remember Michael McGraw saying to me, and I'll, I'll believe him, I think he's a very trustworthy person, a nice guy, and all that goes with that. Um, we have our money, we just don't have a theater. Um, and that was a while ago. That was before they got to paper mill and so that was the reason they went to paper mill so so who knows but um we certainly could use more theater and we think all of them were torn down um certainly the one we heard about the empire theater where life with father played most of its run um it was on 39th street i think but um supposedly it was a beautiful beautiful theater and you know and again that's another one that could be used today so so we do need them and isn't it wonderful that we need them? Uh, there would have been a time, especially in the 70s, when Times Square was in tough shape. There would have been a time we would have thought we wouldn't have needed them at all. I truly believe – I may be wrong about this, but I remember – I think I remember the summer uh, – I think it was of 74. Uh, I may be off by a year or two – that there were nine shows playing. Nine. Mm. You know, so, I mean, and that looked like the beginning of the end or, or, or the middle of or the end of the end. So, so – and look what happened. Well, it, of course, it goes in cycles, and I guess the theater owners uh, want to have a balance between uh, having too many theaters so that things are sitting empty for months at a time and having not enough and not being able to have places to put shows. Uh, it's it's interesting now, recently, we seem to be seeing more in, interim bookings of things that are not traditional type Broadway shows uh, 
everything from Bruce Springsteen to there's this holiday concert coming up with um, with artists from uh, like The Voice and uh, mm-hmm. yeah. America's Got Talent and uh, you know so there are uh, and there's no reason why those theaters can't be used for those kinds of things especially for interim bookings and if that helps um, hold the place you know uh, for something else I think that's great I wonder really though once once you get the reputation of being a death house though I wonder you know because look at that little Schubert now that's not even called that the Schubert's apparently they've taken their name off and I don't even know if they've sold it but it's now stage 42 and boy has that um, place been snake bit uh, there it is on <clears throat> Dyer Avenue and 42nd Street and you know with pigs fly, when pigs fly recently are not being able to um, get the money to, to continue into even the first pre Preview. I mean, another strike against this theater, and it's really too bad that um, somebody went to the trouble of building a theater. Granted, an off-Broadway one, but still, you know, uh, for all our talk about, you know, we, we can't get uh, theaters uh, for shows. I mean, there's something that's sitting empty, and it's really too bad. That show, that theater, really needs a smash hit. And um, I, I hope it gets one really soon, so that the curse can be lifted. Oh yeah, well, I mean, a, re- a reputation as a death house is is something else. And I was thinking that um, that recently the the court has sort of lived up to that again to a yeah. certain extent, hasn't it? <laughs> I was just going to uh, say that the court is uh, undergoing a major renovation, and ah. Schubert's, are, Schubert's are putting a ton of money into it. Uh, and oh, was that going- announced? Yeah, that was announced this week. Uh, It's funny you say that because I saw a sign on a poll uh, saying uh, there's going to be uh, a meeting on uh, October 31st at 6 o'clock about the court annex. Yes. You may notice if you're standing in front of the court to the right, there's a big empty space now that wasn't there before. That street is really going through a lot. I mean, you know, both sides of the street have um, staging from construction. So 47th Street uh, between 6th and 7th is going to be uh, very different in the next few years. And yes, the Schubert's are trying to do something major with the court. And um, I'll be interested to see what happens. You know, whatever <laughs> people have criticized the Schubert's for many, many things, but boy, they really keep their theaters in nice shape. And as a result of that, we can really have confidence that uh, whatever they're planning for the court is going to be an improvement. Let me tell you a little bit about that. Uh, Mark Hirschberg from – Mark Hirschberg, who is uh, writing on Forbes, uh, talks about – a 19,250-square-foot annex that's going to be uh, connected to the theater, uh, and it's going to – Expand the bathrooms. The bathroom is at the court. Only has six stalls for women, uh, and so uh, and the ladies in the mezzanine must duel over two two toilets <laughs> alone. Oh, so uh, this is and they're going to um, put a new huge LED sign outside of the court theater. Uh, and uh, the Landmark Committee is not happy with the uh, changing of the sign out there, but they're trying to work that out. But the Schuberts are spending a ton of money to upgrade the court. And I mean, I think the Schuberts understand the business and the writing on the wall that we have a lot more things trying to come in than they have space for. Um, and... Um, and perhaps upgrading the court will give uh, another type of thing. This thing is going to be a $41 million renovation, uh, oh. and it's being paid for because they sold the air rights over the court uh, uh, to pay for yeah. it. So uh, it's a, a really interesting article in Forbes. Mark Hirschberg has been writing about theater in for on the Forbes.com website for about a year now, and he's been getting really interesting articles together uh, that we've not stuff that's original that we're not seeing just regurgitated press releases as we so often see on all the the various Broadway websites. So uh, that is happening over there. I'll have a link to Mark's thing uh, um, notes in the show, uh, Mark's article in the show notes so you can read it for yourself. Did you guys, uh, either you guys see the, uh, I don't recall hearing a review of it, the, the, the Grateful Dead show that's playing off-Broadway, off Red Roses, Green Gold. 
Yeah, I did. And I have to say that, um, you know, I'm, what can I tell you? I'm Broadway centric. Yeah. I don't know a single, I, I don't know a single song by the Grateful Dead. The only thing the Grateful Dead means to me is the lyric and hair. Um, mm-hmm. but I will tell you this in, in my 19 years at the star ledger, you know, many people died during that period of time. And I never saw as much mourning Throughout the place, the mood was just so somber that the day that Jerry Garcia died. Now, certainly in those 19 years, more prominent people uh, in the world of politics and the world of sports, etc., cetera, uh, and entertainment for that matter, died. But nothing uh, delivered the, the knockout punch that it did when Jerry Garcia died. But what really surprised me, and again, this is going to be so redundant to everybody who knows who the Grateful Dead is, but I was amazed. I assumed that they were um, a, a, a if not heavy metal, certainly um, a, a, a rock group. And it seems to me, from what I'm hearing at the Minetta Lane, that they're much more folky. And I thought to myself, well, maybe that's the way this is being uh, delivered here, and maybe that's not the way it is. But there were some, you should pardon the expression, that's what they're called, the deadheads in the audience were having a hell of a time. They were you know, sing, swaying and singing aloud and all that kind of stuff, and um, they seemed to be having a damn good time. So under those circumstances, I guess this is a faithful rendition of the music. The show itself, terrible, because I mean, it's, it, it has such a contrived book, and another one of those songs where a guy gets in trouble because he's cheating on the girlfriend, and she has this number where she tells him off, and you know, stomps across the stage, pointing at him while he's moving backwards in fear. You know, every cliche you can think of is really there. I guess the only difference uh, in in a cliche is that one of the main characters dies, and in the second act, you know how these country western stars always have these elaborate brocaded outfits. You know, um, he comes back to, with a skeleton outfit, so the, <laughs> that's what's brocaded on it. Uh, so uh, that's a more than moderate interest, but um, it's it's. Uh, it's uh, it's not certainly a show for me, but I'll tell you, if you're a deadhead, you might enjoy it. You might. You might. I have I have no idea, really, because I don't know what The Grateful Dead was really like. <laughs> uh, do you guys know uh, the writer Shana Taub? Um, yes. And um, there, what a nice thing that happened to her this week. Right, James? Yeah. I was just going to mention that she just won the Fred Ebb Award this yes. week. Uh, which um, hopefully will give her more recognition, get more of her work uh, in theaters, and so we'll see more of her. But uh, I was so pleasantly surprised when I had read this news uh, because her uh, her stuff is just needs to be seen by more people, and we're excited about that. Also, that the uh, the Temptations oh. musical. Yeah, what were you going to say, uh, Peter? Well, what I was going to say is um, what's wonderful is that we don't have to really worry for the foreseeable future about the Fred Ebb Award running out of money because Chicago, of course, continues to generate so much <laughs> money every week. And I don't know if I mentioned this, but Ethan Morden has a book coming out about Chicago, um, literally uh, about Chicago the musical. He starts off talking about um, – the uh, city and um, setting the tone for why Chicago was this corrupt place and uh, why it happened. But then he goes into the original play, the silent movie, which he claims was directed by Cecil B. DeMille and not Frank Upton, uh, as the credits say. And the reason is he feels that Cecil B. DeMille did not want to be associated with such a um, scurrilous property after directing things like King of Kings and the Ten Commandments, that he was afraid of losing his audience. Um, So then we talk about Roxy Hart, the movie in in the 40s with Ginger Rogers, and um, of course the uh, original production of Chicago, which was considered a disappointment in 1975 though he certainly didn't see it that way. I didn't either. I, I thought it was tremendous. Um, and um, and uh, in fact, he points out when the Encores Chicago, which launched, of course, this show that will celebrate its 21st anniversary on the 14th, um, he's, he actually puts out, where were you people in 1975? Where were you? you know, <laughs> because he said every number really tore down the house and um, it was such appreciated. Um, ironically enough, you may recall when Chicago was 10 years old, RCA, um, I'm sorry, Masterworks Broadway, I guess, was it RCA then? I don't know. I, I can't <laughs> say. Anyway, some company put out this 10th anniversary edition and who knew when they put out the 10th anniversary edition it wouldn't even be half the run so um so i think uh, i do think that uh the fred ever award will be nicely financed for a while 
Yeah. So the uh, Ethan Morden book, you you've seen it already. It's it's still, uh, shall we say, in previews at Amazon. It hasn't been released yet. I so don't think it's being released until April, but for April some reason, April of 2018. Yeah, that's what it says. Yeah, yeah. So, but they but they sent me a copy, and as as uh, I really feel, Ethan Morden is the best of us all. So as a result, it's really great to have another book by him. And I didn't know this was coming, so what a surprise to open the package in the mail and find out that there was a book on uh, one musical. You know, which is really great to have him go into such wonderful detail about it and why it's such a great show and why it it had more success now than uh, it did originally. You know, I have one more book to mention, uh, Must See Musicals by Richard Barrios, film I'm historian forward Richard to that. Barrios, forward by Michael Feinstein, uh, Feinstein, oh, forgive me. Um, Richard um, and I did the commentary for the film of The King and I on the, uh, I guess, the well, the most recent uh, rele- home video release. It started on DVD and now it's on Blu-ray. Uh, and he uh, has worked for me in, and with me in other capacities. He's a really, really knowledgeable, uh, incredibly wonderful writer about uh, theater in general and musicals in particular. And must-see musicals um, – just uh it's not an exhaustive type of book it 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 really just highlights um uh, several musicals over from let's see from 1929 uh the broadway melody to la la land 2016 and he talks about what makes each of them special but it's uh one of the interesting things about it is how many of these um are either about theater or are actual adaptations of Broadway shows. Let's see, we have, uh, I'm just going to throw off some titles here, uh, 42nd Street, Showboat, um, let's see, uh, Cabin in the Sky, On the Town, Andy Get Your Gun, uh, Gentlemen Prefer Blondes, uh, let's see, uh, Oklahoma and The King and I both made it in. Uh, Pajama Game, which is not uh, a movie that people necessarily focus on, but uh, Richard really loves it. And I, I agree that it's um, a far more successful adaptation than Damn Yankees for, for some reason, even though a lot of the same people were involved. Uh, West Side Story, of course, here, Music Man, uh, and so on and so on. Uh, let's see, the, the most recent uh, Broadway adaptation is Chicago, 2002. Uh, he also has Beauty and the Beast here, uh, the, the animated version, and, and Grease and Rocky Horror. <laughs> <laughs> and cabaret, and there's a lot. My point is, there's a lot of uh, adaptations or musicals that are about the theater world. <laughs> so that's uh, the Turner Classic Movies Must See Musicals: Fifty Show-Stopping Movies We Can't Forget by Richard Barrios and Michael Feinstein. Uh, and I'll have a link to that for Amazon as well. Um, all right. So before we wrap up for the day, I want to remind everybody that you can subscribe to these broadcasts by going to the front page of BroadwayRadio.com. This is there's a subscribe link. That way, each and every time we have a new episode of This Week on Broadway, it'll be automatically downloaded to iTunes for you. Of course, you don't have to listen to us in iTunes. You can listen to us in many ways. iHeartRadio plays us. TuneIn plays us. Google Play plays us. Uh, Stitcher plays us. Anywhere that you can get your finer podcasts. Uh, contact information for Peter, for Michael, and for me can be found at BroadwayRadio.com, as well as links to some of the things we've talked about today, including those books and various shows and everything else. So, Peter... Do we have an answer to last week's trivia? The question was, what two characters who were in Tony-winning musicals and won Tonys themselves from the roles um, have sim- the same initials, the same outlook towards the female sex, and more patter songs than ballad? And I was talking about Henry Higgins in My Fair Lady and Harold Hill in The Music Man. Um, Rex Harrison and Robert Preston won Tonys for their roles, and uh, certainly they were wary of the female sex, as you can tell from I'm an Ordinary Man in My Fair Lady and The Sadder But Wiser Girl from Me in The Music Man. And indeed, they had more patter songs than uh, ballads. The, the closest we get to a ballad for Henry Higgins, of course, is I've grown accustomed to her face. And for um, <clears throat> Harold Hill, uh, he joins in on... Uh, Till There Was You and Good Night My Someone, but still he has more patter songs as You Got Trouble and uh, 76 Trombones uh, attest. So uh, Joe Baccarella was the first to get it, followed by uh, Joe Sugros, Brigadude, and Donald Tessioni. This week, a song from a very famous musical mentions members of the military 
who hailed from Arkansas, Kansas, Maine, Michigan, New York, Texas, and Wisconsin. What's the song? Hint. The song didn't make it in the film version. So what's the song? What's the show? All right. So if you have an idea what Peter's asking, email us at trivia at broadwayradio.com, and we'll let you know if you're on the right track. So on behalf of Michael Portantier and Peter Felicia, this is James Marino saying thanks so much for listening to Broadway Radios this week on Broadway. Bye-bye. Bye. Now on the road to hell there was a railroad station And a man with feathers on his feet Who could help you to your final destination, Mr. Hermes That's me It's a sad song Summertime, Persephone by name. Try.